No. It's good. It's good. Well, it's been an interesting series so far, hasn't it? I hope you have been as challenged as I have been, as stirred as I have been, and uh, uh, growing in, in love like I really feel like I have been as well, which is the goal, isn't it? The goal of all spiritual maturity is to grow in love. So if we're not becoming love, we're doing it wrong. And uh, so we're going to look this morning uh, at our next part. So this is week four of our series on sexuality and the gospel. And uh, I promise you today I won't be as long as I was last week. <laughs> I think last week was the longest I have ever preached. Uh, but such a big topic, we couldn't just skip through it, eh? So, uh, so for those of you maybe that haven't been, uh, went here last week or, or you've missed uh, some of the series, let me just sort of give you an overview of where we come from and where we're heading. So, uh, so the first week I, I talked about the secular and the purity narrative and uh, sort of contrasted those two and then said we're going to look at a, a third way, a different way, a better story. And so week two we looked at that better story. Um, the story of the kingdom and uh, what it really means to be sexually embodied people that are image bearers of God. Uh, then last week we looked at um, LGBTQ and a better way forward. And uh, this morning we are going to talk about marriage and singleness as spiritual formation. Next week we're going to uh, look at this idea of believing into Jesus and our new identity. And then we're going to do a Q&A session for the last week. So, um, so questions, uh, if you have questions, you can text them through. There'll be a number up on the screen. Uh, there's little things on the back of your chairs. You can scan that and type a question anonymously. Um, but just a, a reminder that we do, uh, we do answer questions in the squad cast during the week. So if you've asked a question and you're like, I don't know if, if this has been talked about yet, um, it's possible that we've talked about in the squad cast and you've missed that. Uh, so they are on YouTube and they are on every podcasting app that you could possibly think of. And so um, look for them there. Um, otherwise, we might, it just might be such a good question that we're saving it for the last week and we'll, we'll talk about it then. There's been some great questions coming. So uh, we want to start this morning by having a look at some scripture, um, as we do pretty much every week. And so we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 7. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, you can have a look at that. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because uh, then my sermon would be long because it's a very long chapter. Uh, but we're going to read up to verse 7, then we're going to skip to verse 25 and then finish off um, the rest of the chapter. So, uh, so 1 Corinthians 7 says this, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So just a heads up, this is Paul, this is what the current church in Corinth have written to Paul. They're going, it's good for a man not to have sex, sexual relations with a woman. And so he's responding to this. That's why it's in quotes. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, 
But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Verse 25, now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned with the Lord's affairs, but how... How he can please the Lord, but a married man is concerned about the fears of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs, and her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married, but the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, after reading that, we need to pray. (laughs) Father, I thank you just for this moment that we have together. I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is a revelation. It reveals who you are to us. But Holy Spirit, boy, do we need you to lead us into truth. So we surrender our presuppositions this morning to you, Holy Spirit, and ask that you speak to us and lead us into truth that sets free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, so after reading this or hearing this this morning, you might be thinking, man, it sounds like Paul was having a really bad day. <laughs> like, we, like we read two weeks ago in Ephesians 5 where Paul just uh, like elevates this really high view of marriage and how it points to the beautiful union of Christ and his church. And, and now he seems to be saying, look, marriage is technically not sinning, but, but it's better to be single um, and so what is going on here? Um, so we need to understand the context. Like Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and to put it bluntly, the church in Corinth is pretty much a sexual hot mess. Like we, we have just, we've just like, I mean, at the start of it says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Like what is going on? Where he has to actually point out, like, you're meant to be just having sex with your own husband. 
And he's just come out of chapter 6 where he's like addressing incest. And, and he's saying, look, there's a guy who's, who's having sex with his, it's either his mum or his stepmum. The text isn't super clear on that. But, um, and like, what is going on? And it seems that the church is boasting about it. It's craziness. But this is sort of the culture that Paul is trying to bring a kingdom perspective into. And so it's important that we, we understand the culture that Paul was trying to address. So, so this morning I want to use this passage and we're going to explore it a little bit. But I want to talk specifically about the ideas of singleness and marriage as spiritual formation. And so there's one question I want you to carry this morning. You might want to write this down. In fact, you should, it'd be good to, to write down and maybe print it out and put it on your wall or put it on the back of the toilet door so you can see it every time you go to the toilet. I don't know. But here's the question, and I think it's a really, really good question for us to carry in, in every respect. Here's the question. What is God inviting me into in this stage of my life and who am I becoming by engaging intentionally with his invitation? Let me say that again. What is God inviting me into in this stage of my life? And who am I becoming by engaging intentionally with his invitation? So I just want to um, make a note that I've really appreciated um, Tim Keller's contribution to this topic around singleness and marriage. And um, I've, I've found some of his thoughts really useful and I'll use some of them throughout um, this morning. But I want to first talk about this idea of formation because formation is inherently a human thing. It's not just a Christian idea. Uh, formation is inherently a human thing. If, you're, if you are a human being here this morning, then you have been formed and you are being formed and you will always be formed by something. Formation is happening whether you realize it or not. And the question we, we must all ask is, am I being formed unintentionally or am I being formed intentionally? And, and, and to what am I actually being formed? Am I being formed by the culture that's around me? And, and am I continuing to be formed by the story of my past? Or are we intentionally choosing to be formed and transformed by the truth, life, and way of Jesus. See, the gospel was not about fixing our old life. The gospel was about the death of our old life and the resurrection of a new life that is no longer unintentionally formed by our past, but transformed by the Spirit of God. And so this whole concept where Jesus talks about someone being born again, that this means that there is nothing, nothing that cannot be recreated in Jesus. So Jesus doesn't want to pick up on where we're at and try and fix our old lives. No, no, baptism is the picture of where our old life dies and we are resurrected into new life. And we're going to get into that a lot more next week as we talk about living into the story of Jesus. But, but Jesus used this phrase, born again. And so no matter what has happened in, in our lives from birth right up until this present point, in Jesus, we are always invited into a brand new start. The question we all have to ask is, do we trust him? So when God, what God is inviting me into, into this stage of my life, and who I am becoming, who am I becoming by intentionally, uh, by engaging intentionally with this invitation to be formed into a new life and story in Jesus? Do I trust him? 
at the very core of everything that encompasses this idea of new creation and identity is this question, do I trust Jesus? If I truly surrender everything that I am to this death, will he truly resurrect me into new life? Or do I, do I trust Jesus a little bit and I'm still kind of holding on to the back door of my old life? Because if I really let go, what will the new door truly be? But, and this is the tension. You know, I, on, if you, you know, if you want to explore this tension, go back to my Easter message where I talked about the silence of Saturday. Between the death and the resurrection is the silence and this tension. And in the, in the silence and the tension of Saturday, we all have to ask this question, do I trust Jesus? And so we're living in this, um, in, in this cultural moment where secular society is basically telling us in big, loud letters and words that, that we cannot be a fully fulfilled human being unless we are having sex, and lots of it. And to abstain from sex is to be oppressed by a religious construct. And in many ways, the church has actually bought the same narrative hook, line, and sinker, but we just add the wait till marriage bit. And then we discover that the act of sex does not fulfill all our needs for belonging and intimacy. And so we look elsewhere to digital forms or sex from other forms of creation. See, and here's, here's the point that I want to hit on this morning. Marriage never promises to fulfill your needs of intimacy. In fact, Paul promises that marriage will be, bring extra suffering. <laughs> Did you know that the number one consumer of porn in the world are married men? And it is not because their wives aren't having sex with them or aren't beautiful enough or sexy enough. No, it's got actually very little to do with that. It's because deep down at the core of our culture is the idea that the act of sex is the only fulfiller of all our intimacy needs and it is total deception. See, the thing that is missing from all of this is Jesus and genuine spiritual formation. Right, so let's pick up on the text in, um, in verse 27, uh, verse 26. So I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you, free, and are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will, will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, you have wives... Uh, who, you who have li- wives should live as if you do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if it is not engrossed in them, for this world is in, it pre- in its present form is passing away. So what is Paul getting at here? This is so confusing. What Paul is doing is actually inviting us into a deep theology of the kingdom. He's saying, listen, we are living in the tension of the kingdom now, but not yet. That, that yes, we can taste, we can see, we can experience the, the, the goodness of the kingdom now, but not in its fulfillment. 
that the day is short, that there are these temporary things of the world that will one day fade away. Do we buy things now? Yes, we do, but don't put all your value in what you have because it's nothing compared to the inheritance of the kingdom that you will receive as sons and daughters of God. Do we marry now? Yes, but don't put all your sense of fulfillment in your marriage because it is temporary and it is an incomplete picture, but it is a taste of complete union in Christ. Do we mourn now? Yes, we do, but don't put all of your hopes in this life in the here and now because there is a future hope that all things will one day be restored to the original identity and purpose. Do we rejoice now? Yes, but don't get overexcited about what is only temporary and will one day fade away. Do you remember a few weeks ago I said spiritual maturity looks like steadiness. We are, we are walking through the temporary trials and the temporary joys of this life as ambassadors pointing to a now but not yet fulfilled future hope of the completeness and wholeness in union with him. And so I wanna, I wanna encourage you this morning, if you are single, don't feel incomplete because the fulfillment is coming. Complete union in him is your destination. And if you are married, don't think that you are somehow more fulfilled or complete than someone who is not because that is idolatry. See, the reality, reality is, is that often singleness and marriage have both made, an, made idolatry of marriage. And so Paul is pushing back on these ideas that we might create idolatry out of created things instead of worshiping our creator. See, marriage as idolatry is a very real thing in the church. We make our spouses idols and then we try to get from them what we should only be getting in union in Christ. I, I, I mean, I've done a lot of sort of marriage counseling and things like that over the last um, you know, 10, 15 years of being a pastor, but I, I, I believe 99% of marriage issues are issues of idolatry. So we talked a few weeks ago about the idea that marriage and our union together is like a whisper of heaven. And, it, and it's not, they're not so much about us getting a whisper of heaven, but that in our union with another, with Christ, that, that we are being f- fulfilled in Christ and can give this whisper of heaven to our spouse as we deny ourselves and love and serve them. See, the only way I think to read this text at the end of the day is to see that Paul is aiming to equalize marriage and singleness as equally fulfilling and equally valid expressions of kingdom life. See, Paul is applying kingdom theology to both singleness and marriage. Both equally bear witness to the kingdom of heaven. So, and it's really important to understand that Paul is subverting cultural norms with his discourse in this chapter. He is, he, the way of Jesus is always subversive. It's always subversive. And, and you look at Jesus and Paul, like, like J- Jesus didn't get crucified because he was telling people about how to get to heaven when they die. He was leading them into a subversive way of living that, that, that showed the kingdom of heaven a third way. See, in the first century, Rabbi um, Eliezer said this. He said, any man who has no wife is no proper man. 
and the Talmud went even further. So this is kind of like the oral law of, the, of, um, of Jewish culture. See this, the man who is not married at 20 is living in sin. So, so when you think about that background, this is the culture that Paul was speaking into, and, and then he speaks about singleness as being a gift. And Jesus says it's, it is good for those to whom it has been given. So, so we, we have to resist the idea that singleness is second best. The Bible doesn't say that. Marriage is good, but so is singleness. So Tim Keller, he made some profound conclusions about this and, and the incredible uniqueness of what Paul was actually getting at in this chapter. I mean, it truly is subversive. See, see, the kingdom of heaven is not supposed to be a subculture that we kind of fit into our Western culture or whatever culture we live in. It is supposed to be a counter-cultural way of living in our world. So, so it's not a subculture of Western thought, and it's also not a subculture of Eastern thought. So the kingdom family is actually an alternative community who are living in subversive loyalty to Jesus in the world, but not of the world. Now Paul says, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so for us, I think we are looking to connect the truth of Jesus to the ways of Jesus so that we can reveal the life of Jesus. So let's have a look at these, these two cultural narratives that are going on. So the Western uh, culture, um, you know, the, the West, our culture, this is our culture here, it, it idolizes individualism. We are so individualistic as a society that loneliness is an epidemic. Like in the UK now, they, they literally have ministers for loneliness, in Japan, the, the, the highest level of welfare in, in, uh, in Japan is actually for, for single people who are lonely. Like, like it, loneliness is an epidemic in our society. And, and then you've got the Eastern cultures, which idolize families. And so it's the sense that we are not complete until we are married and have at least two kids. Let me unpack this a little bit. So in the West, that idolizes individualism and, and idolizes the freedom of individual rights. You know, at the center of the universe is me. And so bring marriage into that sort of perspective. And, and so that's this idea that marriage is fine, but only if it can meet our own individual needs. It needs to add value to my life before I'm going to enter into it. Marriage has to in some way fulfill me and it's almost like this is just an asset in my portfolio. Now, we don't want to cut ourselves off from too many options, never get married until you've you know, pursued your career and done all the things that you want to do in your life. And this is why we're seeing such a decline of marriage, because Western secularism defines freedom as options, so we only commit to relationships that we can still have our hand on the back door with, and that is relational fraud. See, the idea of faithful covenant relationship doesn't jive with individualism. This idea makes marriage a means to an end, and that end is my fulfillment, my happiness. And if it doesn't work, get yourself a new one. 
then the traditional view or, or more of an Eastern view is that we are nothing until we are married. If we aren't married, especially in our 30s, we are abnormal. There must be something wrong with us. Total value is placed on our ability to be, to be married and produce children. But Paul is subverting both of those cultural norms. Paul is saying that both marriage and singleness are equally valid if they are seen through the lens of the kingdom, which is primarily about image bearing and being formed and transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. So let me give you some thoughts here. As image bearers through marriage, we dis display deep, intimate, faithful covenant relationships. We dis display the reality of laying down our lives for another just as Christ has laid down his life for us. And we display the union of God and humanity in our two different flesh becoming one flesh in union. And this is why Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And as image bearers through our singleness, we display the all-sufficiency of Christ, that he is enough for us, that he is well able to fulfill every need that we have for intimacy, love, and belonging. And so whether you're single for a season or whether you choose singleness for the kingdom, as some do, Paul did, well, for whatever reason you are currently in a season of singleness, you are extremely valuable and a beautiful expression of the image of God. As you display to us the all-sufficiency of Christ. So what is God inviting us into in this stage of our life? Who are we becoming as we engage with this invitation? Verse 7, Paul says, I wish that you all were as I am, but to each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, one has another. So Paul describes singleness as like a gift. And, you know, it's like a spiritual gift. You know, someone might say, I've got the spiritual gift of prophecy or you know, leadership or mercy or whatever. And someone might say, I've got the spiritual gift of singleness. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. <laughs> but Paul is not, he's not saying that, that singleness is a gift, like a spiritual gift that some people have and some people don't. What he's saying is that the state of singleness is a gift. The state of singleness is a gift. And whether you're, in, whether you're single for a season, for whatever reason, it is a gift. It's a gift to you, and you are a gift to the body of Christ. Preston Sprinkle said this, so what is the purpose of singleness? Is it just a pitiful stage to get through on your way to married life? We should elevate and honor the single people among us as those who, in Paul's words said, will do even better. Much of this anti-singleness message saturates the ear of our churches, sometimes with words, other times with actions. The message is usually it is subtle and unintended, but single people hear it loud and clear. You are incomplete until you get married and have at least two kids. But if you have more than four, then people think you're weird again. <laughs> Some Christians have bought into the cultural narrative that you can't really thrive unless you're married and having lots and lots of sex. But Christianity does not teach this. Christians can live without sex, 
but we cannot live without love and intimacy, and there is a difference. Human flourishing doesn't depend on marriage, and it certainly doesn't depend on sex. The fact that we are relationally and sexually messed up, and only Jesus, not marriage, can fix that. Jesus, the one who was single and the embodiment of human flourishing and joy. It's good, eh? See, the multiple ways in which people experience states of singleness can be a powerful witness to all members of the church. Singleness is a gift to the body of Christ. As I've been doing a lot of study and research into this series, I have read so many stories and heard stories of many, many same-sex attracted believers who are committed to a life of celibacy. And they've committed to a life of singleness as, as spiritual formation, as a vocation. And I feel like, like as I've read these stories and heard these stories, I feel like I have been given a profound gift. So these people are modeling and displaying what it truly means to deny themselves and take up their cross in a way that I will never know. And that is a gift. That is a gift to us. Jackie Hill Perry is the author of a book called Gay Girl, Good God, said this. She said, by submitting my temptations didn't go away. I just had a greater affection competing with them. See, for Jackie, straight wasn't the goal and marriage wasn't the goal. She just made Jesus the greatest affection of her life. See, we are living in this cultural moment where loneliness is becoming an epidemic in Western society and individualism is totally having its fruit. But listen, single does not have to mean lonely. In fact, I would like to suggest that we have more and more married people who feel more lonely when they're married than they did when they were single. Because marriage does not fix loneliness. It does not fix sexual, uh, disordered sexual desire. Marriage does not fix a fear of intimacy. Marriage does not fix sexual shame. What marriage does is unmask us. Marriage exposes these things, which is brilliant, absolutely brilliant, if you approach marriage as a form of spiritual formation, but totally destructive if you see marriage as a form of spiritual fulfillment. The answer for loneliness is not marriage. The answer for loneliness is not a partner. It's, it's not a spouse. It's not sex. The answer for loneliness is actually an all-inclusive Jesus community. So one of the questions that came in um, during, you know, over the time was, where in the Bible does God condemn loving same-sex relationships? And um, please hear what I'm going to say, not what I'm not saying. I, I would like to suggest that God does not condemn them. In fact, he probably commands them. Because we all need loving, deep, intimate, interdependent, vulnerable, non-erotic relationships with people of the same sex. We are hardwired for intimacy and not just your spouse can fulfill that. We are hardwired for friendship. And David and Jonathan are this beautiful picture of two men who loved each other deeply. And David says to Jonathan, your love for me is greater than a woman. 
doesn't mean that it was erotic. What he's saying is that there is an intimacy that they had together as friends that for David was more valuable than any experience he'd had with a woman. See, all throughout the epistles, Paul reframes family. And from a biblical perspective, family is not family units. Family is the church. See, the hallmark of the early church was devotion, devotion to communion, teaching, worship, prayer, and devotion to one another. And single people, actually, you reflect like the triune nature of God in a really unique way. Because as a single person, you're not committed to a relationship with just one person or one human being. You are free to invest in communities of people. See, in the culture that Paul was writing, it was a law that a widow had to get married within two years. The idea was that to be single was to be a drag on society, and there was only honor in family honor. But here, Paul was elevating the state of singleness and encouraging subversive kingdom family of God to support and care for the single people amongst us. Actually, Paul directly addresses and encourages those two that spouses are yet to belong to the family of God. And so I want to say to you, if you are married and your partner is not yet part of the family of God, you are not less than anyone else. Paul, in this passage, encourages you. See, if we are beating ourselves up and feeling less than because we are single, we have actually given ourselves over to the idolatry of the traditional culture. And if we go out and give ourselves to others and look for others to fulfill our needs of intimacy through sex, we have given ourselves over to the idolatry of the Western secular culture. Tim Keller hilariously notes that there are, there are some Christian singles that seem to be able to pull off both idolatries at the same time. <laughs> and that is just the worst of both worlds. See, the truth is God is not withholding you. That is the original, he is not withholding from you. That is the original lie in the garden. This idea that God doesn't know best, that his design for human flourishing is actually wrong or incomplete. Come on, we know better, don't we? (laughs) In Psalm 81 verse 10, it says this, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. He's saying, I'm not going to hurt you if you obey me. Open your mouth and I will fill you. I know exactly what you need, your needs for intimacy, longing, desire, to be wanted, to be noticed. They are not evil. You're just looking in the wrong place. Come to me and I will fill you. That's why as we worship, we get such a sense of intimacy. Why? Because we are in family, worshiping the God that we adore. As we join together in community, listen, listen, church, if we have an individualistic view of Sundays, you know, as we gather, or any time that you gather, if you come and you're just looking to get your own needs met, you have missed the point of what we are to display to those around us. And who knows that there could be single people that are going, I need, I need, 
family and I need to experience this intimacy of family that I, I'm not getting anywhere else. And they need to come. And, and as, as people of God, we embrace them, we love them, and we worship our God together. And, and all of us together meet with him and we get those needs for intimacy met in him together. This is, this is who the church is. We're an alternate community to the world. Different, subversive. All right, we'll talk a little bit about marriage and then we'll, we'll close. Are we doing okay? All right. So in Ephesians 5, we, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. See, marriage is more about how we are laying down ourselves to serve another, and in doing so, embody the character and nature of Jesus who came to serve, redeem, and restore us. Listen, I, I am 100% convinced that the healing and wholeness of a wife comes through her husband. I've sat in far too many counseling appointments to think otherwise. See, as husbands, our willingness to model and embody Christ in our marriage actually releases our wives to embrace the healing and wholeness of Jesus. He says that, that, that we are to, just as Christ has for the church, that we are to sanctify our wives, cleansing her by the washing of the word and to present her as glorious without stain, wrinkle, or blemish. Come on, husbands, we are to present our wives to the world as beautiful, cherished, and loved human beings. And in doing so, show the world how Christ loves his church. In verse four of chapter seven, Paul says this. He says, a wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. This is so subversive. Because in that culture, it would have gone like this. Husbands, the wife, you own your wife. Her body is yours. Wives, serve him. But Paul is equalizing both man and woman in the marriage. He is subverting the culture of the day. And what he's doing with these two passages is he's actually contrasting the ideas of possession and service. So listen to this. Possession is actually really dangerous in the context of marriage. And Paul is trying to help them get their head around that actually possession is equal here. You own her and she owns you just the same. So, so in a society that said that man owns the woman and woman serves the man, Paul was saying now you own and serve each other equally. And, and so what, I, I think that this is what he is getting at when he says that there will be trials and sufferings in marriage because, because possession and the idea of possession is latent potential for trouble. Possessive codependency is a recipe for disaster in any relationship. A good marriage is a marriage where both parties can say no to themselves. 
And I think that Paul is highlighting here how much easier it is to overemphasize possession in a marriage versus a friendship. It's far easier to serve someone in a friendship and far easier to possess someone in a marriage. But, the, but actually, we are called to deny ourselves in marriage and become like Jesus. This is spiritual formation. You see, you see the, the, the marriage, marriage as spiritual formation is totally different than singleness. Spiritual formation in marriage has to do with the exposing and vulnerable nature of marriage. In, in marriage, we are inviting someone else to see the best of us and to see the worst of us. And we are becoming more like Jesus as we lay down our lives to serve one another so that they also can become like Christ. So if the goal was to become like Jesus in the first place, this makes total sense. But if the goal of marriage was I need someone to fulfill me, then we are in trouble. It's only when we find our needs met in Jesus that we are now free to serve and love our spouse, no strings attached. So, and so I want us to, to maybe get our heads around the, this, this idea that the, the goal of all of this is Jesus. Whether you're single or married, the goal is Jesus. The goal is not a good marriage. The goal is a Jesus-centered marriage. Because the reality is a good marriage can be just as idolatrous as a bad marriage. Uh, this is what sets us apart from the world. Who knows that there are, I know people who are not Christians who have great marriages. Beautiful people with good marriages. What sets apart a kingdom marriage? What sets us apart is that a good marriage was never the goal. Jesus was always the goal. And there's a lot of really good sort of self-help marriage curriculums out there, but 99% of them are missing something. They have made good marriage the goal, not Jesus. So marriage is not the goal, not even a good marriage is the goal. Jesus is the goal. So let's come back to the original question, and then we're going to have communion. So whether you are married or single today, the question is, what is God inviting you into in this stage of your life? And who are you becoming by engaging intentionally with his invitation? Let's pray, eh? Music team, you can come back. Yeah. Why don't we stand... Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, we thank you, Jesus, that you are all sufficient. You are all in all. I thank you that you have called us into an invitation an invitation to be with you, to share life with you, and to be formed by you.
I thank you that just as we are a community of people that want to display who you are as image bearers, we want to be united, have unity together. I thank you that we do not become united as we look at each other and try and be united, but we become united as we each look to you, as we each look to you and are being formed by you. We become like you and we become more united than if we were ever to try and be united in our own effort. And I thank you that it is the same in marriages, that we are more united when we look to you, Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you do not have favorites. There is not one type of phase or part of our lives that is more important or favored by you. I thank you that each part of our life as we journey through life looking to you is the same. We're not looking to the things of the world to get our significance or our value or our worth, but we look to you, Jesus. In you alone is our worth and value. May we see the things of this world as an opportunity to show a different way of living, a different way of seeing as we image you to the world around us.